Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you very much um, for coming. The talk then, the subject is, does the morality of the artist affect the beauty of his artworks. So I'm hoping, I mean, with the, these kind of pictures here, that we might have a discussion. I present to you what I'm, um, the, 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 the necessary requirements, as it were, to discuss the question. And then, uh, and then hopefully we can have a, have a bit of a discussion. As you can see from, um, from these two, and no, it wasn't in the, in the publicity, was it exactly? Was it what I was talking about? No. Um, <laughs> no. The, so that's the question, and then with reference to three artists in particular, uh, Fra Angelico, Caravaggio, and Marco Rupnik. So Fra Angelico, we're talking about a 15th century artist. Um, Caravaggio, we're talking about a 16th century artist. And Marco Rupnik, we're talking about a, a 20th century, uh, mainly, but also a 21st. Now, the interesting thing about these three artists is that Fra Angelico is saint. He was blessed for a long time, but now he's saint Fra Angelico. And his name, actually, um, um, Fra Angelico, which is the angelic brother, was a deliberate um, reference to, um, in art, the equivalent to the angelic doctor, who we know, um, obviously, as St. Thomas Aquinas. So you've got, these, you've got this... Um, so he's a saint... Caravaggio is, is well known not only for his artwork, which we'll hopefully discuss, but also for his, um, his um, what shall I say, um, uh, character, passionate character. Let me put it that way. <laughs> A passionate character. Uh, he, he got to Rome in complete poverty as a young man in his, in his um, late 20s, early 30s. He died at the age of 39. Um, but he had already, unfortunately, um, been in many brawls, many um, um, court cases. He was he was um, hauled up regularly for having a, using his sword um, in the streets of Rome. Um, he 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 was often an angry man. Um, um, l l absolutely loved his art, but uh, it, it ended up actually having a brawl and killing someone, which meant he had to leave the country, leave, leave Rome. Um, but he was waiting for, and we'll come into this, uh, we'll come into this another, uh, uh, towards the end, waiting for a papal pardon in order to get back to Rome to carry on um, his work. So there's very interesting dynamics, I think, in Caravaggio most especially, and then Marco Rupnik, a 20th century, incredibly um, popular up until recently. Um, his artworks, mainly mosaic, you can just see his Head of Christ there and an Our Lady there. His artworks apparently are in over 200 national Catholic shrines Across the across the world now, not only in the Middle East, um, it's Lourdes, um, Padre Pio, John Paul II um, shrine in, in Washington. I mean, it, it became became a bit of a theological artist superstar towards the end. Uh, well, around the beginning of this um, um, this millennium, but recently uh, has has been convicted of. Um, uh, a, a lot of psychological and, and sexual abuse of a religious order of nuns that he set up himself seemingly it seems to have come out now that he he set it up with a with a co-founder um i've got the name of the of the sister here by the sound of it in order to be able to exploit them psychologically sexually um and so we'll, we'll come on to that. So we've got great sinners and a great saint. Possibly the only, I think it is the only 
artist saint actually for Angelico. I don't know any other artists who have actually been canonised. Um, so, sorry. Saint Luke. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I don't want to forget him. <laughs> so the point of this talk then, all right, does the morality of the artist affect the beauty uh, of the artwork? We're going to look at um, saints and sinners, saints and sinners, and we're going to look at their <coughs> artwork. And that, I mean, it's for you to decide um, for yourself. I'm not going to, I'm tr going to try and put all three of them in the best possible light. So that um, when we come to look at these, and uh, um, when you come to look at these, that you you really you really do um, look at it as clearly as you can. So your 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 first the first slide is well let's um, we're going to look at the mor morality. Let's be absolutely clear about the various aspects when we say does the morality affect the um, artwork. The second thing, what what do we mean by beauty? Um, within the Catholic tradition, of course, and then we'll look at the three artists. So morality, I mean, I've, I've done it very, very simply. I do think we need to consider seriously the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, because of the faith of all three of them, the faith of all three of them, um, and possibly the charity um, as well um, in, in certain respects. Um, I've put the seven cardinal virtues there. Obviously, the cardinal virtues, these are the opposite of the seven deadly sins. I'm not talking about the, cardinal vir the normal cardinal virtues plus um, four cardinal virtues. These are the opposite of... So, again, um, humility, purity, charity. You can see humility, opposite of pride. Purity, opposite of lust, etc., etc. Um, the level of pride, um, we know something of what people have said about Marco Rupnik um, and about Caravaggio. Uh, Caravaggio was, I don't know if one can call it arrogance, um, because he really believed that he was a good artist. But of course he was. <laughs> so um, maybe that's not pride. Maybe that's just an insistence because he had to fight his way through from poverty that actually he is a very good artist. And he used to say so. Um, and fight and fight for it, and it came across and um, often as as pride. So I want us to think about those um, aspects of morality as well, and of course the Ten Commandments, because um, we've got um, we've got absolute clear cases of adultery for Marco Rupnik. We've got murder, unfortunately, for Car Caravaggio. Um, so we do have the Ten Commandments being broken, um, at least with those those two sinners. I don't think so with the saint but even the saint um we don't know so much about uh, in terms of his spiritual life very hard by the way i mean it's easier i think in spanish or italian um to to be able to get a sense of what their the spiritual lives of these of artists were in the english-speaking world english texts on artists um are not just do not go into that 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 that, that aspects of their lives um in fact books on on catholic sacred art in english um can be thoroughly boring um in in my view i've read hundreds of them but they almost never understand grace church mariology or the eucharist so so they miss out <laughs> things that are absolutely essential not just to our faith but to the to those aspects of of and absolutely clear to us um, in, in the artwork. So it's very hard to recommend um, books on Catholic sacred art uh, in the English uh, language, except for someone called Timothy Verdon, but we can talk about that afterwards. All right, so that's all I want to say. Let's keep, when we say morality, we're not just talking about sexual immorality or Caravaggio's murder. We're talking about a range um, here, which I think we need to keep, them, keep it all in, in mind. That's all I want to say. It's not a talk on um, the Ten Commandments or the virtues, so um, that's all I wanted to um, say there. I do want to... I think the next um, um, piece in your... The next uh, slide, as it were, in this amazing PowerPoint I produced for you all, which uh, um, we can't see. It's very interesting that in the Catechism of the Catholic Church... There are two sections on art, on, on sacred art. One is in the liturgical section, obviously, 
and it it just it literally it talks more about the liturgy but a very interesting section which really does go into sacred art in more detail this section truth beauty and sacred art paragraphs 2501 i think i think it starts 2500 actually and goes through to something like 2500 uh, 06 this I don't know, you know, that you know the four parts of the catechism, I, I, I'm sure, covering the four dimensions of the Christian life. First part, first dimension of the Christian life is professing the faith, so it follows the creed, um, what, what we need to know um, and profess in terms of our faith. Second part, second dimension, celebrating our faith, um, obviously liturgy and sacraments. Third part, how to live our faith, um, especially rooted in the Beatitudes and the Ten Commandments. Fourth part, praying our faith rooted in the Our Father. Which, which of those four parts would you expect this to be in? I, nobody expects it to be in the Ten Commandments. And amongst those of those ten, it's commandment number eight, which you will all be able to run through <laughs> the ten and know exactly which one I mean. Thou shalt not bear false witness. So this section on truth, beauty and art, truth, you see, that should have been a clue to you all. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour. And so art, sacred art is about not bearing false witness, false witness about God, about God. So sacred art must not bear false witness so I would suggest, I mean, there's, there's so much in those articles. I would suggest that um, when we look at sacred art, it must be true to the Catholic faith. Right? And if it's not, it's actually bearing false witness. And therefore, we need to think clearly whether sacred art sufficiently conveys. So let's just read what I've put here. So... 2501, this is a tiny fragment of that, that um, paragraph, which is worth reading in full, um, but I wanted to get on to the, the artworks. Created in the image of God, man also expressed the truth of his relationship with God the creator, because it's talking about language. Yeah, it's talking about truth um, in words, and now it says not only in words, but the beauty of artistic works. And I think having um, musicians amongst um, the audience... It also includes um, architecture um, and music. By the beauty of his artistic works. Art is a form of practical wisdom. That goes straight back to um, um, Aristotle with the two, um, two um, dimensions of knowledge. Uniting knowledge and skill. Now, this is the important bit. To give form to the truth of reality. To give form to the truth of reality. So we're talking about divine realities, but also, obviously, the word made flesh, because it goes on to say this includes um, the reality of, for example, the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady, the reality of grace. I mean, when I give talks on art, I will always say to the audience right from the beginning, how does an artist paint grace? Right? You've got a spiritual reality, but you've got Our Lady full of grace. If you don't give some indication that Our Lady was full of grace, are you being true to the reality? You've got to find ways of painting Our Lady full of grace, not just as the poor girl from Nazareth. It's not, that's not actually good enough in the Catholic faith. So, so many people, I don't know whether they, this is a tiny digression now, but so many people who are, who are not Catholics will say, you Catholics... Yeah, you, you come across it. You Catholics, you always paint Our Lady, you know, with, you know, with luxurious um, 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 dress. And, you know, you never, you're never true to the gospel where, she, where, she's, where she's a poor um, woman from Nazareth. And I always say, oh, yes, it's absolutely true to the, uh, true to the scriptures because of what St. Paul says in, the, in his letter to Corinthians that... Jesus became poor that we might become rich. And so you have always the riches of heaven, the riches of grace, um, that the Catholic understanding of Our Lady will always portray um, Our Lady in the richest possible manner. Why? Because she fulfills everything 
that St. Paul says of the, um, of the riches that the church gains from, from, from her son. Right, so um, it, it, it's, it's worth um, um, thinking about that. So, 2502, sacred art is true and beautiful when its form, right, the entire, the entire composition we're talking about here, so not just, um, not just the, um, like the structure, the structure of it, not just the colours, not just the, the technical ability, but the entire, the entire form, uh, where am I, corresponds to its vocation. What is the vocation? To evoke and glorify in faith and adoration the transcendent mystery of God. So sacred art is to evoke, because obviously we're talking about the greatest mysteries um, that have been revealed to us, and glorify. That's what the art is for. It is for glorification. The transcendent mystery of God. And this spiritual beauty of God is reflected in the most... Holy Virgin, Mother of God, the angels and saints. So we're not only talking that sacred art must only ever be of heaven, right? Every possible imagine, imaginative um, view of heaven, right? Because Christ, obviously, the word made flesh, uh, we had heaven amongst us there, and by grace, um, we have that um, glorifying in faith and adoration, the transcendent mystery of God in his church, in his in his mother, in his church, in his saints, and in his angels. And so it's not, it's not just images of heaven. That's not what it's talking about. So because sacred art is in this section on truth, well, not only because that, but that's the right place for it to be, when we look at beauty, we have to look also at, at truth. Yeah, And that's why I've given you here, just moving on to the slide on, as it would be, on beauty. Id quod visum placet is St. Thomas's famous definition of beauty. Um, this is what beauty is, is for him. Now, when you, when you read about this, there are many people who say this is a very poor uh, definition of beauty. St. Thomas was not into this at all. Um, but I believe, and the whole classical understanding of beauty has come from, from here, um, that it, it, it's a, one can see in this um, everything that one would want for a, a proper classical understanding of beauty. So, id quod, that which. So as soon as um, visum on being seen pleases. So his definition of beauty, because let's be clear, when we look at the beauty in these works of art, I'm not, I'm not at all interested. Well, it's not that I'm not interested. I am interested in your spontaneous, subjective um, reaction. Um, that's important, but that does. That's not an indication of beauty, right? It's not an indication of beauty that any. In other words, beauty in the in our Catholic tradition is not in the eye of the beholder. It's not up to you. It's not a relativist. Um, or a subjective understanding of beauty. There's something um, based in, in being, based in, in creation, based in um, that which is one true good and beautiful. Well, one true and good, which radiates the unity, the truth and goodness um, of, of being, of reality, of that which is, um, radiates, um, its, radiates its splendour, yeah? So, so that which, um, it, here, we're talking out of beauty which is rooted in being. So you can see what I've just put there. Um, I mean, I'm going to go through quite quickly here because I want to get onto the artworks. Um, but it, but an, a proper understanding of beauty is a very interesting, is a very interesting um, way, way forward, which very few people really are very uh, familiar with. So that which is talking about being, being and being is one true and good. So there's a unity, truth, and goodness, and those three um, radiate um, radiate their, their their perfections. And the greater the perfection of unity, truth, or goodness, the greater the the splendor, if you like, of of the being in that dimension. All that is 
is good, all that is is true, and all that is radiates its truth, that's its intelligibility, and its goodness, that's its desirability, to the extent that it is. So, this is very interesting. Um, I, I used to give the example of a Mother Teresa in her old age, or oh, we'll come on to this actually a little bit, a little bit later. Um, she's, she has such moral goodness that a moral goodness radiated through her being, but there are other aspects to her being which were disintegrating when she was getting old. So she's incredibly wrinkled. You can see pictures of, of uh, Mother Teresa with, I mean, <coughs> unbelievably um, um, uh, 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 wrinkled. So there was a, there was a, a physical... I don't want to call it deterioration, but there was a, it, wasn't, it wasn't the beauty of a 20-year-old of a, of a, of a um, young woman towards the end. Uh, towards, so there are layers, if you like, um, of, of beauty that we need to, um, objectively, which, we can, which we, can, we can think about. For St. Thomas, beauty includes three conditions. It radiates integrity, clarity, and proportion. And I think I haven't put it there, but integrity... Is, there, is, is unity radiates as integrity. Um, truth radiates as clarity. And goodness radiates as proportion and harmony. So you've got unity, truth, and goodness. How do they, how, how are they beautiful? They're beautiful. So the, the um, extent of the unity. So, I mean, if someone is missing a limb or missing a, an eye or... Right? There's something missing there, so what is present is beautiful. Um, but if there's a lack um, in the unity, there's a lack of what ought to be there, then um, that's not the, a perfect integrity. Um, and therefore, same with truth and same with goodness. So, um, finally then, that which on being seen pleases... So for St. Thomas, that pleasure that we get from something beautiful, this is where many commentators differ. They say St. Thomas has based his definition of beauty entirely on subjective pleasure. Well, that's not good enough, some people will say. But if you follow his, uh, his, his metaphysics all the way, all the way through the summer, um, it's absolutely clear that his understanding of pleasure is a spiritual, intellectual pleasure based on unity, truth, and goodness, based on being. Because, because his metaphysics is, 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 is perfect. Um, it's, I mean, it's outstanding. Um, that, was, that was part of my doctorate. So it's an intellectual pleasure caused by unity, truth, and goodness of being just radiates, and that, ra- that sense of, of splendour... Um, is what we call beauty, towards which our senses can be trained. So, I mean, I say especially to young people, you might think some of the artworks I'm going to show you, you know, they really, they really don't resonate with you at all, and you think, I cannot take that as beautiful. I, I can't, I can't stand it. So, um, but it's for actually for us to train our senses to what actually is the case rather than the other way around. That's not beautiful because I don't think or feel it. Um, and, a, and a lot of people <clears throat> have, get a shock with this, that it's beauty that needs to train us rather than us saying, dismiss that because it's not uh, because of our, because of our, dismiss or accept something because of our feelings or pleasure towards it. Is that, is that making sense? Um, and in fact... Um, there have been artworks which I've been asked to comment on. As Joseph said, you know the, the artworks in the in the Latin Mass Society uh, magazine. Um, sometimes I look at a work of art and I think I really dislike this. I mean, from my own sentiments, sentiments, my own feelings, I think I don't want to. I don't want to do a commentary on this. And then when I look into it, I think. Caroline, this is beautiful, and it's for you to retrain your under, your, your your senses because of the intellectual um, spiritual pleasure which I know um, has now formed me to know that something is is more beautiful than I my senses actually was taking in at, 
not that time. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it, it's a value. I've, I've, wanted, I've not wanted to have anything to do with certain pictures, and then I wanted them on every room in the house, uh, every wall of every room, because suddenly I realised how, how extraordinarily beautiful it is because I've had that inter- spiritual, intellectual um, um, pleasure that has come through understanding the unity, truth, and the goodness of it. Okay, now... In order to really get an understanding of beauty in its most complex, I mean, I'm going to say complex levels, um, I want to have another look at truth in particular. We can't look at them all, but let's look at truth because if it's truth radiates, right? Truth has a splendor to it, and that splendor is beautiful, which our spiritual intellectual faculties can, um, um, can receive. Truth has these four levels. Actually, we know these levels best by the definition of, you look to the right, um, we know these, de- these um, levels by the difference between a lie, invalidity, error, and privation. It's quite interesting that we, we, once you know what those four are, then you realise, ah, yes, um, each one is the opposite of truth in, in some in some way. By the way, um, I haven't um, mentioned adequatio reit intellectus. Again, this is a, um, a definition of truth which is um, universally rejected um, um, in, the, in, in almost every sphere, I would say, yeah. outside of the, the Catholic Church, that there is this correspondence, adequatio, many different ways of, of using the word adequatio, between ray things and the mind. In other words, the mind is capable of being in, in correspondence with, with what is the case, with truth, with reality. Yeah? I mean, this isn't a talk on Thomist um, epistemology, so um, I'm just going to be very brief here. But I have found this fascinating in relation to beauty. So, are you, can you see that ontological truth... So beings have truth in themselves, the fact that they are, um, and it's often called the intelligibility of being, that that which is, is available to our minds. God has created everything and he's created our mind to um, be able to attain to that, that which is the case. Lack of what ought to be is a privation, right? So if there's something missing, I, I don't know why, but I've got into the habit of using the idea of a blind dog. Um, a dog can be a wonderful thing um, in everything that's there. It, but, but if there's a privation of something that ought to be there, then there is an aspect of ugliness in the lack. Yeah? Um, in, in, that, in that lack. But beauty in the rest. Intellectual truth. There needs to be a correspondence in our propositions with what is the case with what actually is present, what is real, what is tr- and therefore true. And um, I give Andrew Beards, I don't know if some of you know Dr. Andrew Beards, gives a whole talk on truth and attaining truth via um, a philosopher called Lonergan. And um, we found ourselves, and I've tended to give an entire um, talk on what is truth uh, in accordance with St. Thomas Aquinas, and they look like completely different talks and we're coming from completely different aspects. But what Lonergan, and there's a lot of people and a lot of philosophers follow, in the Catholic world um, view, follow Lonergan, who is really trying to um, show the path between intellectual truth and ontological truth. That, I, I do it as a simple step, um, which it is when you're saying things like that is a table or that is a floor or you are present. So in some senses that correspondence with um, what, is a- what is actually the case is very straightforward. But in other cases, it's not straightforward at all. And Lonergan has the complete system of how you, how you arrive at intellectual truth, um, at being able to state the case, basically, is what it is. Then, of course, we've got to have logical truth. Now, most definitions of truth today um, in the philosophical world are as long as one has a coherence of statements... Um, the premises don't matter. Like whether there's any, whether, I mean, all the modelling that we've been hearing from um, um, Ferguson, etc. I mean, there's constant modelling going on as to, um, um, well, okay, um, various, 
various subjects in the um, in the news over the last three years. Um, modelling is not necessarily uh, built on, on truth at all. So you have Carl, people like Carl um, Hennigan, Hennigan, I think it is, or Hen, Hennig, who has um, evidence-based medicine. So he everything is according to what is actually the case. And then you have Neil Ferguson, which is everything is uh, entirely according to to um, our, our models. All right. So we, we're actually living in these two different understandings of truth um, um, day by day in the news at the moment. Now, moral truth, um, obviously, when you're telling a lie, right, your moral truth, yeah. moral truth comes from logical truth, logical from intellectual, intellectual from ontological. That. So, so can you see, when we talk about truth, it's good to realise that we're, we're talking about different levels. So if you look at the next slide, if, if beauty right, is the splendour of truth, and truth is in four levels, well, then so is beauty. So is beauty. So, and so, so is goodness and so is unity. Right? So we won't go into all of it, but you can see, look at ontological truth, I tend to start at the bottom. If you haven't got, um, if you haven't got um, a sufficient um, fullness of being, uh, you've got privation, um, then you've got what's called ontological ugliness. Right? Next level up, you've got an intellectual um, you've got you've got ugly, ugliness if the statement of your art is not corresponding with the with the with the, with reality with what is actually the case. Are people nodding. So okay, you, you you see what's going on here. This is why you, you had to have a you had to have a handout. You had, I, want, I wanted you to see the. Um, it's it's too difficult to explain without you seeing it written there. So logical truth is a coherence of statements. Um, and that and that radiates as well. So at that level too, in artwork, have you got have you got coherence um, in in what's going on in your in your work of art or postmodernism? Have you got a pastiche of, of fragments? Have you got um, all sorts of um, um, have you got a mess um, of um, of fragmentation of a bit of this, a bit of that, and nothing. Um, and unfortunately, it's it's very it's very popular, um, where you do not have a, a unity of um, of, of, of vision um, anymore. Um, correspondence between um, knowledge and words, hence a moral. Um, here we talk about a moral beauty or a moral ugliness, and so we're we're moving here in a sense into um, a particular level of the artists. Uh, morality, because how how moral is he being at that level um, as he's painting his 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 works? Okay, so we looked at looked at um, you know, the the range, if you like, of 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 moral um, positions one can be in, and and uh, um, every every artist is a is a is a is a sinner, obviously as well, um, but. There's ways of understanding the Catholic faith, um, faith, hope, and charity, which um, affect us through the sacraments, and therefore um, through 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 forgiveness, um, and therefore through you know starting again. And um... so basically, and I, I sum that up: a person may portray beauty or ugliness at any or all of these levels, two different degrees. Um, according to the unity, according to the truth, and according to the goodness. So we're talking about multiple levels of, of, of beauty. You could never say one thing just is, is, is beauty. It might be beautiful in one way and not so beautiful in another. Um, I'll give you one example of Caravaggio. Um, we, I don't think I've got it. Caravaggio had an extraordinary eye for, for detail. Um, his, his way of doing uh, still life is absolutely uh, exquisite. Um, as good as, well, I always think, well, some of the Netherlandish, they, they had um, still lives of, of um, flowers and, and insects and butterflies um, are quite exquisite, but he was before all of them. And um, Zurbaran is the other of my favourite artists for incredible observation of reality 
So once you've got that, you've got a beauty, an object of beauty that comes through um, Caravaggio's work because of his intense um, um, attention to the real <coughs> in, in, in front of him. So whatever his um, other areas of his life affecting beauty, um, immediately at that level, the truth, the goodness, um, and the unity of a lot of his work in terms of, in terms of um, painting his, his still lives um, is, is absolutely outstanding. In fact, we might, we've got a little bit we can see um, in one of them. Okay, so, um, are, you, are you ready? Because now we want to really look at the, um, um, we now want to really look at the artworks. Yeah, that, that's the summary um, of, what, of what I've just said, yeah? Um, there are many, many levels, obviously, of understanding beauty. As they come together, obviously, you've got more and more beautiful. But some people will focus on Caravaggio, um, for example, his delight, and just say, this is so beautiful because of that one aspect. And the same with, the same with Fra Angelico or, or, or Rubnik. Because of that one aspect of beauty, they, they call it beautiful, because that's what they hone in on. But we're talking about um, four, eight, at least 12 different nuances in terms of, of, of beauty. Because you've got the four levels of truth, four levels of goodness, four levels of unity. So you've got beauty at all those levels. And then you've got um, the, different, the different kinds of morality of the of the artist. And then, of course, you've also got um, his knowledge, his skill, and his skill of composition, skill of attention <coughs> to detail, skill of unity, skill of um, basically being able to, to draw. <laughs> you know, there's so many different... Um, and then you've got the goodness, truth, unity um, of, the, of the materials that he's using. How good are the materials that are being used? I mean, are these the finest quality materials? Um, in that point, the mosaics of Rupnik, you see the, um, the, uh, the mosaicist here, he, use it, he uses um, very early Roman um, um, methods for making his mosaic tiles with um, a, a, a um, very pure um, early pigments for, for his colouring. So nothing synthetic. So he uses a supremely high quality um, in, the, in the actual materials that he's using. And when he does gold work, um, it really is gold leaf between um, and glass. So his, his, his tesserae for gold um, are absolutely exquisite. So again, at one level of the goodness, unity, truth of his materials, right, um, the, the whole I've been to I've been to the um, atelier in in Rome, um, and I've seen them make the, the these tesserae, and they're very proud of the fact they use um, very traditional methods for producing them because they're they're very pure, they're very natural, um, and then and then that's how he does it. So you begin to see, right? So let's start with um, I just want to give you now a very brief what I. It's not easy to find something of the moral life of um, all these three artists. Well, some things are more obvious than others. Um, oh, he's flicking his pages. <laughs> um, so, Fra Angelico, um, born uh, towards the end of the um, 14th century, beginning of the 15th, um, just outside Florence, Early on, decided uh, he wanted to become a, um, a Dominican and entered the Dominican order young and literally spent the whole of his life in different Dominican convents um, painting. So he had, from that point on, the life of a friar and the life of a, of a painter. Um, he... he um, he trained under out, outstanding um, artists of the day. And uh, I think mainly we can say um, that his prayer life, which was the whole of his life, 
um, is reflected explicitly and deliberately right through his mosaics, his, his altarpieces, um, and his, um, his frescoes, his, um, uh, his paintings. He had a particular range of paintings, which many of you will know, in each cell of the Dominican convent of um, San Marco in, at Florence. So he painted something for every friar to meditate upon for the whole of that friar's life because they didn't swap cells. So when a, cell, when a, a friar entered a cell, um, there was nothing on the walls uh, at all except for um, he was asked to do a different painting for every cell, for every friar. And so he, as a Dominican friar himself, um, having lived in a, in a cell, he knows what is going to help every friar um, cell by cell with all the different, um, different scenes that he paints. So there's something extraordinary about those particular scenes um, in that convent. But they're often very, very, very simple. Um, so there's, there's little to say. Um, he's, he literally lived in, in his, his friaries, especially at San Marco, and he died in um, 1455. We can say that he grew up, um, or the, the um, monastery, the Dominican monasteries that he was in, um, were fairly pure. I don't know how puritanical, but they were... Um, no, I wouldn't say puritanical, but they had a simplicity about them in relation to Florence at the time. Now, Florence at the time had two aspects to it. The Medicis ruled Florence, and the, Medici, the Cosimo de' Medici, who is at the beginning of... Um, um, was a very religious man, but he was a banker um, who um, made a, a huge amount of money. And um, the rest of the Medici family degenerated very quickly with the, with the morals of Florence. And so um, Florence is, uh, at the time, has this double aspect, a highly religious aspect to it, but also a highly um, homosexual, particularly, and immoral um, side to it at the same time. So you've got a... You've got a... You, you, yeah, you, you've got a... A Florence that his convent is 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 rooted in. Okay, that's um, that's about him. And you can see I've just put a single work of art of his crucifixion to give you a sense of what he's producing um, in his life. So now Caravaggio. Can I move on to Caravaggio? Very very interesting. Um, Obviously, he, as I said, not just a passionate, but really uh, in and out of the brothels, in and out of fights, in and out of trouble, constantly in the courts, constantly having to flee, um, um, uh, lost his temper so many times, um, um, hitting people, throwing food across the restaurants. There's a, re there's, um, a law case about um, a plate of artichokes um, <laughs> that he... Um, he he um, threw, <laughs> um, and 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 finally, in another, in, you know, in this final brawl, um, um, killed someone. He had two pretty naughty friends. There was a, there was a three of them who used to go around causing havoc. Um, but but two things I want to bring out. One, he grew up in Milan, um, and Milan at that time. Um, let me get my debts right. Um, Charles Borromeo um, was the Archbishop of Milan in and through, through the time of the plague. And also, um, in 1562, the, um, his uncle, um, Pope, um, Pope Pius IV, um, asked him to help out um, with um, bringing about the Council of Trent. So you've got, you've got a fascinating context for this for this um for charles borromeo and um after the charles borromeo after after the plague after the after trent um had um an absolute I mean, almost an obsession but i would say a, a spiritually correct obsession with confession so the whole of milan is into confession in a huge way he just pushed and pushed and pushed so he was the one who invented the confessional box um, so that people could come uh, in um, 
um, a certain amount of anonymity, so they could really confess their sins. Um, so Caravaggio as a young man is growing up in a, in a town with a highly, um, or at least, yeah, a, a, around the same time, just um, after, highly, uh, a very saintly archbishop, um, who, who apparently came from a noble family, but um, lived in absolute poverty because he was looking after the sick in the streets and um, um, during the plague times. And then this... Um, so Caravaggio is learning about confessing your sins. Can you see? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in an intense, in an intense town, of all towns, that's where he grew up. Okay, he had to leave Milan because he had started getting into so much trouble. He was literally running away from the police, um, um, got himself to Rome. But what's going on in Rome at the same, at that time? Or at least, I think, um, Philip Neri, St. Philip Neri has just died. In fact, more or less, uh, he dies more or less as um, Caravaggio comes to Rome. Where has Philip Neri been um, drawing converts out of the brothels. Where does Caravaggio go straight into? Um, that's, his, that's his life. He goes straight into low-life Rome. And who is in low-life Rome at that particular time? The disciples of Philip Neri. Right? So again, he's highly... Uh, it, it, the, I mean, I haven't read this. I'm sorry to say, I haven't read this in any book. But I'm reading about Philip Neri and where he is. I'm really about uh, Charles Borromeo and what he's doing. And I'm thinking, well, Caravaggio was there. Caravaggio was there. This is exactly the same time that Caravaggio is befriending the same brothels, because we're talking, we're talking about the same areas um, of Rome. And so Caravaggio's crazy life, um, um, he's, he's, you know, he's in his 20s and, and um, early 30s. Um, and dies at th- the age of 39. He's highly influenced. I mean, he's highly influenced. I mean, all around him, you've got this, um, this sense of um, gre- great sinners and great um, ability to convert. Yeah? Because that's where Philip Neri was getting his converts from. He was getting them straight f- from the brothels. So you see in an artwork like um, The Call of Matthew... It's exactly um, the kind of place where Philip Neri or his disciples were entering and saying, you don't need to be involved in that, in that money, um, in, that, in that gambling, come, come with me. So that call is, is kind of typical of what was actually happening um, in, in, in low-life Rome at the very time that Caravaggio um, enters, enters Rome. Can you, can you see? I, I mean, I, I, I think this background to Caravaggio I want, I want to give it to you because um, we can say great sinner. Um, we can say great sinner, but maybe too um, one who greatly cared about, um, about his faith um, and knew, um, knew the need for the sacramental confession very regularly. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, he had to flee Rome uh, after um, after this murder, and um, and and heard that um, that the Pope really wanted to give him the pardon, and so once he heard that, he was I can't remember where. Where did he? Does anyone remember where he went to? Did he go to Venice? He went to Malta. Yes. Oh, all over the place. Yeah, I. He heard of the pardon. Um, from the Pope, who who really loved his work, um, he heard of it, so he was able to. He had done a lot of paintings. He got onto a boat with a whole stack of paintings that he was going to take back to Rome once he'd received the pardon. Um, and so um, he set sail for um, for Rome. But the boat docked somewhere before getting to Rome. He then was arrested by people who hadn't. Anyway, there's a whole confusion. He was arrested. The boat, boat sailed on with all his paintings in it. Um, he then uh, managed to um, escape from the prison and decided he hadn't anything left now. In absolute poverty and absolute determination and belief in that pardon, he started walking um, to get back to Rome. And uh, he died of a fever on his completely poverty-stricken walk. Um, so 
um, I think a fairly tragic, a tragic story. But I want to come on to some of his artworks um, as to why he... Um, right, I've just given you one example there. I have another one here which I want you to see as well, um, which actually we can pass round. Um, I can talk about that one, but I want you to see this one. Oh, have you got this one too? Oh, good. Let, let me, let's just have a quick look at this one. Yeah. This is Mary Magdalene, the penitent Magdalene, it's called. And I think this shows several sides of his character very, very well. Um, she, um, Mary Magdalene, at this, at this time, was normally portrayed um, bare-breasted uh, or, or, or nude and, um, and, and distraught and in a fairly dramatic um, way, um, often with lots and lots of long hair and um, prostrate on the ground. Or I mean, the, the, there are a great many um, versions of um, the penitent Magdalene that you can, you can see. Caravaggio has gone completely differently I mean totally differently to any other Mary Magdalene uh, at the time to and this is what the the people were saying at the time they were shocked by this because well this could be anybody that we could meet actually on our streets rather than this dramatic half nude woman with hair all over the place and you see well yeah fine 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 now that's fine for Israel but obviously you know that's just we don't need to we don't see that kind of person but this person, so he said, this is far too realistic. So he painted really realistic, and um, they didn't like it. They didn't like it. It was, it was like too much, uh-oh, you know, that actually could be me or that woman. or. So that's one of his, I think, great strengths. He painted people very realistically, as realistically as is still life. Um, and it shocked, um, it shocked um, the people of the time. Um, secondly, yes, sure. Pen- penitence. I believe he's shown in her um, a great delicacy towards the courtesans or the prostitutes that he is, a great understanding of, of the women, and a sense of penitence. I think he understands, through this, he understands what it is to be penitent. She, you can't quite see, but she's crying. You can see the tears on her face. And she just has her, her head bowed, her hands held together. Um, all her jewels are broken. She's literally thrown them on the ground and broken them. Um, and then you've got the glass um, jar there, which is Magdalene with her, with her, with her oils. But you've got her, you've got her well you know, sufficiently nicely dressed, again, with a lot of detail in the dress. So there's aspects to this Caravaggio who's very sensitive, I think, towards women, in fact, um, very understanding of, um, of sin, of penance, and uh, of, uh, of the dignity of the, of the sinner. And I think that's something that reflects something of perhaps his own life. But you also have, he has a fascination again and again. I think um, you'll see it there again. Look at, look at Our Lady. He loves the, the flesh of that, the shoulder and the neck and the, the, and, and the hair. Um, that, that whole, um, that, that, that beautiful line of the, the bare shoulder and the, and the, and the neck, the ear, the hair. The face. He does that pose again and again and again. And I think there's something there which many people have said to me that that picture of Our Lady there. Well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be. I don't. I don't want to influence you, but um, it's actually. He, I mean, that that was really rejected um, when when he painted it because you do not paint Our Lady with all that bare with all that bare flesh um, and that 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 beautiful bare, bare neckline. You just don't do that. Right? But you can see wh- where it comes from for him. So I think there's a touch of the, of the sensuality, if you like, which in a, in a sense, I hope I, I don't want to, I don't want to um, influence you, but there's a sense of um, 
there's there's over there's a sense of his sensual immorality which comes through into his paintings, which actually it was John Paul II said, um, the character of the artist will always come through into his works. It always will. He he can't stop it, and I think that's where it comes through um, when I see these. Finally, Marco Rupnik. How many of you know um, have come across the work of Marco Rupnik? No. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, for in some in some um, Catholic um, news feeds, um, he's he's number one in the news almost every week um, since um, December uh, last year, when allegations of his um, sexual abuse of this group of nuns that he founded um, have started coming to light. So first there was one. Um, there was a. Sorry, I should, I should go back. He was born in Slovenia in 1954. At that time, it was part of Yugoslavia. He, he early on became a Dominican, uh, sorry, a Jesuit. 1973, he, be, he joined the, the Jesuits. He came to Rome to do his studies. Um, but his, he came to Rome and enrolled at the Academy of Fine Arts. So he was an artist from the start before he became a priest. So he first studied art in Rome and then um, studied his theology uh, at the Greg. Um, was ordained to, um, to the priesthood in 85. Then went to set up a centre, um, a, a centre for evangelization actually, um, through art in Slovenia, um, a, a Jesuit centre, and that's where he set up the Loyola community um, with, a, 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 with a, a, a woman who was a, like a co-worker with him. Um, I, I, I don't know enough about her, but she founded this Loyola community with him. He was the chaplain. And it was there, uh, apparently, um, that he... I mean, some call it just seriously um, perverse. So, not the, not the um, the extremely laddish behaviour of Caravaggio. But something much more. I mean, some of the articles say sinister, because he wanted to actually he psychologically and sexually abused um, um, these these sisters as part of his way of, as he kept saying to them, this is part of your way, this is a, this is a way for you to express your love of God, your, your understanding of, um, for example, the Trinity. He's got a fascination for the Trinity, so he even had like, two women um, oh. with him in order, because he kept saying, it's important to be Trinitarian in this, so let's... Um, yeah. So, and, and you've seen this, um, I, you may or may not have seen his work, Unfortunate. Well, fortunate. What can we say? Um, he um, his work. His because he was he's a theologian. I mean, he's very very theological in a lot of his um, his work. Uh, a priest um, using these natural materials, natural skills in a in a in a in a modern way. He, he does, he had produced, I mean, he was producing some extraordinary work and he was greatly favoured because you think, here's someone who knows how to do religious art. Here's someone who knows how to really theologically profound Catholic art because he's a Jesuit. He knows his theology. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is, so his work, his mosaics <clears throat> there, I mean, right across the, the, um, the Basilica in Lourdes, um, the Shrine of Padre Pio, um, 200 Catholic shrines across the world, 200, have thought, who do we go for? We go for, I mean, they've got a priest here um, who, is, who is also an artist. What, what can be better than that? Um, then, so, but, uh, so he started this work uh, in Slovenia, then he was invited to Rome to start this, um, this particular Roman atelier for, for mosaic work. And that's where he really 
um, his work took off because he managed, you know, he, he really developed it. Um, and as some of the, I'm going to call them victims who have now come forward of the sisters, I mean, there were nine, well, first, first there was one, um, and he was investigated for that who came forward in 2015. He was investigated for that. He absolved her um, for sexual sins that he had committed with her, which is, which is automatic excommunication. It is so wrong in the church. So there was a two-year investigation to make sure that this was absolutely accurate. It was found to be absolutely accurate. So he was excommunicated um, after that two-year investigation. Um, he went to his fellow... Jesuit, who happened to be uh, in the papal palace at the time, <laughs> who gave him immediate, um, um, he lifted the excommunication. So he was excommunicated for a, about a month. But we don't know what happened there. He, it's, he, the Pope has uh, the right to do that, but the excommunication should only be lifted if he's repented. So we have to presume, we don't know, it's, it hasn't come forth that he repented of what he did. And so that excommunication was lifted. And then he went on and carried on. And um, he was giving talks for the... He gave one of the... Um, was it, is it a Lenten retreat? He, he, yeah. he gave a retreat. He did one of those. He, 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 he the then... Yeah. The <laughs> After that. Oh. Yeah. Uh, he appeared on the stamp, on the, on the Vatican so, stamp. Um, but um, then more sisters came forward. So after that one, it was like, mm, okay. So then another nine came forward, and now I think there's been at least another twelve or something. So there's over twenty, which which the articles all say are highly credible. Obviously, it, you know, it's all going through because it's only just um, this is all, all all coming out now. Highly credible. Now. <laughs> he has he he has i mean he's been stopped i mean he's now he's um he's been complete all his faculties completely suspended so um however i need to stop probably do i can i just can we just look at one that f finally uh, you, i think have you got a copy of this yeah now before i knew any of this i i i um when I first saw this, I thought, okay, right, here's a, you know, here's a priest. Here's a... And there's a lot in this which I think is theologically very sound and, uh, and, and very moving. And it's the unity of Our Lady with her, with her son on the cross. Right? So Christus totus, Christ and his church, is extraordinarily um, well portrayed here. And it's never been done like this before. So they're both... Right, they're, they're both right at ground level even. And it's Our Lady who's covered in red. You see, from head to toe, right? The red shoes, right? The red shoes of the Pope, the red shoes of Marston, the red shoes right through, right? The whole of her cloak. So, and look what she's doing. She's collecting the blood. I mean, this is Our Lady, this is the church. Collects the blood from his side and offers it, that's what she's doing with her other hand, offering it to the... Um, <coughs> The, to, the, to the Roman soldier, right? So what's happening there, it's our lady and her son together at that, at that moment of the crucifixion who are inviting, if you like, here's a pagan, it's the first pagan, isn't it, Longinus? Here's the first pagan is being offered salvation via the church, right? via our lady. I mean, the profundity of this, I think, is outstanding. And um, Rupnik explains that this is every man here um, that's why he's got his back to us, so we don't see his face. Um, and the tip of his spear, which should have blood on it, um, is, a, is deliberately completely white to indicate the complete conversion, um, the baptism, if you like, um, of, the, of, 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 of Longinus. So he has, he ha um, he, this must be the son of God, right? The one who proclaims Christ as the son of God. So you, you have something, I, I think, very profound um, in what's here. Um, you have a face of Christ here, which um, we were talking earlier with Mary Claire and I, which is actually very expressive compared to 
most of the time, is just completely non-expressive. So you have that as the face of Christ um, again and again and again, almost um, ad nauseam, with no change, no matter what the sanctuary. I mean, I've looked at, I don't know how many, 30, 30 um, examples of Christ in the different sanctuaries, in the different mosaics, in the, in, at different times of his life. Absolutely, absolutely no change. It's just like that all the time. Not like that one there. So, um, so now I'm going to leave it to you. We've got three faces um, a Rupnik of, of, of Christ, of Rupnik, of Caravaggio, and um, for Angelico. Um, that's the resurrected Christ, that's the Noli Me Ten Tangere, um, one, of, one of several. Um, the Christ looking down, I think, with a, a, a exquisite tenderness of Fra Angelico. Um, the Christ looking down at um, Mary Magdalene again, um, who's come forward. And he says, don't, don't touch me. Um, Caravaggio, that, the Caravaggio there is Ecce Homo. Um, and the Rupnik, um, I can't remember, could be anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, um, so I want to leave that, I mean, we've, we've looked at a lot. Um, well, I haven't spoken to you about this extraordinary one of Caravaggio here, but... Faces of um, Our Lady. And then the faces of Our Lady, again. Um, yes, you see something of what we've said about Caravaggio there. Yeah. You tell me. Tell me. I mean, these two, this is, in a way, it's for you to... Um, do you think, because this is it now to finish, the last couple of minutes, do you think, now you know something of their lives something of their context and something of their, their work, do you think the morality has affected the beauty of their artwork? This podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating and podcast on the platform you are using. You'll find some more information and links relating to the talk in the show notes, which you can see on a page dedicated to the IOTA Una podcast series on our website.